Welcome to the most energetic, positive, happy, and healthy podcast in the world. Living the dream. Dream stands for diet, rest, exercise, attitude, and meaning. I'm your host, certified health coach, motivational speaker, sober since July of 2016, American Ninja Warrior competitor, two-time world record holder, and ultra-marathoner, Matt Scaletti. Here we go! Welcome back to the Live in the Dream podcast. I'm your host, Matt Scaletti, and you're not going to believe who I have on the show today. This is Lauren Williams, and she is an American sprinter and bobsledder. Yes, you heard that right, sprinter and bobsledder. She won a gold medal in the 100-meter dash at the 2005 World Championships and silver medals at the 2004 Summer Olympics 2006 World Indoor Championships, 2007 World Championships. She also won a gold medal in the 2012 Olympics. In addition, she won a silver medal as a part of Team USA in the two-woman bobsled at the 2014 Winter Olympics. Yes, you heard all that correctly. I think I got that all right. Lauren is the first, this is just my favorite thing to say, I'm going to keep saying it over and over again. She is the first American woman to win medals in the Summer and Winter Olympics. Welcome to the show, Lauren. It is so good to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's just, let's dive right in if you're okay with it. I, I know a little bit about you, but I don't know much about your background and how you grew up and were you sprinting at an early age. Just tell us a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, so I'm born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, um, yeah raised up uh, kind of in Beaver County. So my parents split up when I was three years old and I went to live in Detroit from kind of kindergarten to sixth grade. Um, and then I moved back to the, the Pittsburgh area, like I said, in, into Beaver County and lived in Rochester and Cranberry for sixth grade all the way up through high school. So, um, yeah, I found track and field at age nine. Uh, depending on who you ask, depends on what story you get. So my mom will tell you that I got home faster than our family German Shepherd one day. And that's when she knew that I was going to be great at track and field. My dad, on the other hand, will say I was at the Carnegie Science Center. Um, and there was a Flojo hologram. So Flojo is the world record holder right now for the 100 meters. And I was racing the hologram all day and I beat it a few times and I didn't see anything else at the Science Center. So he said he knew then that I was going to be pretty fast. Oh, that is awesome. So nine years old, you, you start to get into it. And does it just become like an obsession for the next 10 to 15 years or, or what happened after that? Yeah, I actually didn't like track and field very much when I started. Um, so I was kind of a, a nerdy, smart kid. I was really interested in books and education and wanted to kind of stick to that. And, you know, it, it grew on me over time because I had natural talent. So I realized I was faster than the girls my age and faster than the boys my age. And then I realized I was faster than some boys that were older than me. And I was like, ah, this is kind of fun. I like winning. <laughs> and so the passion kind of grew um, slowly but surely. And I think the biggest thing that caused it to take off was, you know, getting the opportunity to get a scholarship. So as I said, education was super important. And I come from a family of five sisters and two brothers. So um, there was not a lot of extra money to go around. Um, my father had leukemia, so he was disabled for a, a good bit of my um, upbringing or wow. all of it. After, like Once he got sick, he stayed sick. But, um, you know, it was just like, okay, we need other resources in order for me to be able to go where I want in life. And I really, really um, wanted to be able to go to college. So when I started getting these letters in the mail that said, hey, would you like to come run at our school? And I was like, wait. So you guys want me to run around this circle and you're going to pay for my education? That sounds like a great opportunity. I would love that. Um, and ultimately, I chose the University of Miami as the, the school that I wanted to go to. I mean, is that exactly how – I wouldn't know. I wasn't recruited to do anything. So was that how it worked it, your junior, senior year? You just started getting letters not, not even knowing that was an option? Yeah, I, I had very little knowledge of how athletic scholarship worked. And these letters started coming in the mail from all kinds of schools and just started sorting through them with my track coach and my parents and, you know, 
choosing what would be good options. They sometimes have a little questionnaire inside that you send back um, and they decide if you're interested and you get up to five visits. So I only took three of my five visits. I think three or four. That's all it took. You knew. Yeah. And I knew Miami was a place that I wanted to go. What's I'm so curious as to I, I played basketball in high school and I mean, I was decent, but I probably didn't put in the amount of time that I should have to continuously get better. I, I'm just wondering with you in, in running track, were you someone that just was in the gym and just hitting it while everyone else was partying and socializing or did you have a balance there? Uh, no, I had a pretty good balance growing up. Um, you know, I was very active in school as well. So student, student council president, class president. Um, so lots of other activities. Basketball was actually my more um, enjoyable, was a more enjoyable sport for me. Um, I just wasn't very good at it. So <laughs> I love the team aspect and uh, just didn't have a lot of good hand-eye coordination, et cetera. So yeah, I did a little bit of everything. It wasn't all um, sport. And like I said, because I had natural ability in high school, wasn't a very big deal. In college, I had to take it a lot more serious because someone was paying, you know, effectively paying me to do it in the sense of giving me that free education. Yeah. Um, but I even still had time, you know, you're living in Miami, Florida in college. That's a, like the best time of your life. I'm, I can't even imagine. I've been there and I know it's a fun town. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're down in Miami and at what point do you think, and I have no idea how it works as far as becoming an Olympian, but what, at what point did you kind of think, maybe I have a shot at the Olympics. And how does that even get into your mindset? Yeah, um, it was not until I ran the second fastest time in the world as a junior in college. So I was competing at the national championships, NCAA championships. And my goal had been to win the NCAA championships. That's all I had really been working toward the whole year. Um, I was, you know, slightly aware that it was the Olympic year, but that wasn't like a goal or aspiration of mine. I didn't know that that was even within reach. And I found myself, like I said, with the second fastest time in the world after um, winning the NCAA championships and the Olympic uh, trials were just a month away. So I had to turn my focus from one thing to the next. And I was off and running, you know, at just 20 years old, figuring all that out. Wow. So you, I mean, you didn't really, it wasn't like you'd been thinking about the Olympics for the whole year. This just, you crush it at the, I'm assuming you won the NCAAs, right? I did. I won the NCAAs and yeah, that was when I ran the second fastest time in the world. That's incredible. What, what was the time? I, I'm not. Um, I think it was 10.97. Under 11 seconds and 100 meters. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's just insane. So, <laughs> so now you know you have a shot at the Olympics. And what happens? Do, do you have to go through all these like time trials and then work your way on the team? Or did that one victory get you onto the team? No, yeah, just at the NCAA championships, that kind of qualified me to go to the USA trials. And then at the USA championships, you need to be top three. So, um, and I actually was third of the three at the Olympic trials. So kind of close to like not having make the team, but got in there and then ended up, you know, even beating those two young ladies when I got to the Olympic games and being beat by um, another young lady that, um, you know, won the gold medal and I won the silver. So what's... Just because you brought it up, now you have me curious, like the other women, the two other women in the USA, is it like, clearly you're all trying to beat one another, but is there also like a camaraderie within just being from the same country or is it like cutthroat, like you just want to beat everybody? Well, the 100 meters is a pretty high stakes event. Um, you know, a lot more income is made from that that particular event. It's more like the premiere. So it's a lot more cutthroat. Um, once we're done with the 100 meter race, though, you know, we got to get together and do the four by one. Um, and so that's when we kind of have to like merge after, you know, whatever we've done competition wise. So it's it's not that it's, you know, cutthroat and, and we're like, you know, trying to do things to hurt one another. But we're also like not super friendly. And I think that also holds us back from creating really good chemistry for the relays or it has held us back in the past. That's a really, I would have never even thought that. That's a really good point that you're going against these two women. Then they're on your team a few days later, I guess. Yeah, it's a really tough thing to kind of navigate. Um, 2004 and 2008, uh, we did not have successful baton exchanges. And, you know, while you can name a 
various things, you know, is that actual moment where I did not receive the baton from the person that was passing it to me as the thing. I think that a lot more what happened behind the scenes and the, the type of energy that we were carrying because we were not working well together played a bigger role in us not being successful at the Olympics. Wow, that's really, uh, that's stuff I don't read on Wikipedia right there. I had no idea that stuff happens. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for opening up about that. That's, uh, that's, that's really interesting. So, so 2004, like you said, Lauren, you're 20 years old. I mean, what's your mindset going into your first Olympics? Were you, was it like, were you just overjoyed? Did you know how big the moment was at that age or like kind of walk us through it? I can't even imagine. Yeah, it was pretty overwhelming for me because like I said, I was just a junior in college. I wasn't really planning on winning or getting silver at the Olympic Games. So um, I was very happy to for the result that I got, but I was even happier because um, the people of Pennsylvania uh, got around me and made sure that my family was there. So um, I mentioned that my father was ill and there wasn't a lot of money in our household in general. So um, people started fundraising in order to be able to get my family to go. And so the goal was kind of to get my mom and dad there, but people just really lit up the the contribution lines and before we knew it we had enough that um eight members of my family were able to go to the olympic games uh, based on the generosity of yeah the local pittsburgh community wow that's such a great story yeah eight, i'll never eight. forget you know just something like that is what i really feel like embodies the olympic games it wasn't just the opportunity to compete but to have my family there to see it to have them be able to, you know leave the country and you know the olympic games also happens pretty on pretty short notice for the athlete um so you know you compete at the end of june and you make the team and about uh, six weeks later are the olympic games so you know it's last minute travel there's visas there's you know it's just it's a very expensive trip in addition to it being a you know generally expensive because you're leaving the country so it was a really big deal to me that you know people got around me and really believed in me in that way and and made that opportunity um exist Man, that's so huge i agree that's because pittsburgh we're pittsburgh proud we represent right yeah we are <laughs> <laughs> uh how walk us through a little bit like training leading up to the olympics was it were you doing what what you were accustomed to or does it change and just take it up a whole other notch in your training. Yeah, you actually do very similar things to what you've already been doing and you start to actually taper down. So, you know, what a lot of people don't realize, you got to be ready to peak and so you need to be fresh and recovered and ready to go. So you, you build a strong base. We talk about always building a strong foundation for all kinds of aspects of life. Um, it's really important that you do that in sport so that you have that base to be able to carry you through the game. So, you know, two or three weeks before, you're not training as hard as you ever have in your life. You should have already done that and you should be in great shape. You're just fine tuning little details at that point. That's a really, um, that's a great point. Yeah, I would have never thought of that either. That's a mm -hmm. really good point. So you're tapering down. And then what about, I'm, I'm so excited to ask you this. Right before the gun goes off in, I guess, any event, but especially the Olympics, and let's just use the medal round as an example. Obviously, I'm assuming that's the biggest race of your life up until that point. What, do you remember what goes on in your head? Is it a routine that you do every time or what goes on between your ears, like leading up to right before, boom? Yeah, um, in the races that I did really well, you remember nothing. Um, it's sort of like tunnel vision that that kind of started some button comes on and um, you just don't hear or see the crowd or anything like that in the races that I remember, like hearing the crowd or hearing my mom yelling or, um, you know, losing the race and trying to tell myself in the middle of running it like speed up or something like that. Like any time that I have like any real thoughts of, of or memory around it, I didn't do very well. So when you don't get in that tunnel vision, you, um, you usually don't end up with a very good result. Yeah. I guess that that's a really, huh, that's pretty wild. So you, when, when you don't remember, I guess you're just so zoned in. It's just boom. Exactly. Yeah. It's like you just don't see or know anything about what's going on around you. That makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. What, what was the, and we'll just talk about 04 Olympics for a second. What was the best, and if you want to say the worst as well, if there was a worst, part of being a part of that first Olympic Games? Um, I would say the best part of that Games was, like I said, having my family there and my dad kind of giving me a pep talk telling me, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, 
you know, what happens out there. Like, I love you. Um, you've already accomplished so much. And so it took a lot of the pressure off to go out. Like, I felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders and I had to, you know, carry America to the gold medal, et cetera. And, you know, I think that would have made me come undone if my dad hadn't really like calmed me down. So I said, people really getting around. So, and, and contributing so that he could be there so that that moment can happen um, is, is a pretty priceless thing. Um, you know, worst moment, I would say my dad actually got sick while over there. So like, as I mentioned, he had leukemia. Um, and because everything was happening in a different language, so Greek, um, he was having to get dialysis while he was there. Um, and at one point they messed up the, the, the way things were supposed to go. He ended up needing like a blood transfusion and he ended up getting really, really sick because I think they didn't understand what they were supposed to be doing treatment wise versus what he actually got. So um, pretty stressful to have your dad in a hospital in another country. <laughs> I can't even imagine that while you're trying to focus on running. On the Olympic Games. So uh, I'm assuming, did he end up, like, he made it back home and everything okay after that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was uh, fine. Uh, okay, good. Uh, what, what, did you, what did you learn? I mean, I'm sure you learned a lot. But is there one thing that sticks out that you learned after that first Olympic Games? Um. I don't think there's any one thing. I think the whole journey of, you know, competing and participating taught me all sorts of different things. Um, one thing that I would say I definitely learned during participation in sports was like how to be a good loser. So I think we take for granted, you know, being a good winner and being a humble winner and gracious, et cetera. Um, and there's also some credibility when you are a good loser uh, because you will lose sometimes. Um, everybody does. And it's hard to know how to govern yourself accordingly, um, how to lose gracefully, how to pick yourself up when you, you know, kind of been kicked down. Hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a skill and an art in and of itself. And it really teaches you gratefulness. Also perseverance when um, you can figure out how to be a good loser. That's a really, I wish you would have told me that when I was playing basketball in high school, I could have used that because <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was the opposite of that. Looking back at one of the things I wish would have gone different is like you just said, dealing with losing better. Okay. Just cause you, you said the word losing. And to me, like when I read your bio, when I'm talking to you, your first Olympic games, you get a silver medal to me. That's like, Oh my God, I can't believe, I mean, you got on the podium. I don't know if you were expected to or not, but I'm assuming at 20, maybe you weren't and you did. Did it, did this just feel like a massive win or was it like, if I would have just like this much further, I could have got gold. Like what's, what's the takeaway there? Uh, yeah, for me, it was a pretty massive win. Um, I wasn't planning on being at the Olympic games, you know, so uh, to not only make the Olympic team, but then to get on the podium at the Olympic games was a really, really cool thing that um, I got to experience. And I didn't want to focus on, you know, not having won the gold. I wanted to focus more on like, wow, what a cool journey this has been. Good for you. So is it fair to say, leading up to that was it like an upset that you were on the podium or do you even know where people are like well i had run the second fastest time in the world you know just two months prior to that so i was on everybody's radar at that point so yeah it wasn't i think an upset i think you know when i ran the second fastest time at the ncaa championships is when there was like an upset or uproar like what the heck where this girl come from sort of thing but by that time i had kind of started to earn my own at the, yeah at that point it's a good point. You just burst it on the scene. That's just incredible. Mm. So did when you came back in 04, can you talk a little bit about, because we'll get into, uh, I mean, if you're open to it, the rest of the Olympic experiences you've had. But can you walk us through from when you got back to the next few years? I mean, did life change for you or was it just now you're back being a student or did anything change or was it pretty much just same old, same old? Yeah. So, I mean, from that point on, I was a professional athlete. So now it was my job to compete in sport. Whereas, you know, previously it was, you know, my job in the sense that it was getting me a free education. So I had to give up the rest of my college eligibility. And I was lucky that I was already kind of ahead in school. So I only had one semester left and um, Nike was uh, nice enough to pay for that last semester of school in addition to, um, you know, providing me with like a contract, a sponsorship through them. So, um, so yeah, so the first kind of semester or part of getting home you know there's a lot of parades and things like that 
um, celebrations. And then, you know, it was just kind of navigating the world of being an adult. So um, moving out from living with my college roommate and I ended up buying a home and, um, you know, just little things, the starting to learn how to organize my finances. So, yeah. But business as usual in the sense that I stayed with the same coach and continued to train with her and, you know, go from there. Oh, uh, yeah, I like that. And I'm still learning how to be an adult myself. Lord. I'm a work in progress. I'm getting there. I'm getting better. <laughs> so 2008, you go to Beijing. So your second Olympics. How did it did it feel different the second time around? I mean, was there did you feel more pressure, less pressure? And did you still I know you did. I think you did the four by 100. Did you also do the 100 meter or what? What were you involved in in 08? Yeah, in 2008, I ran the 100, and I also did the 4 by one relay, and there was a lot more pressure because the young lady in 04 had retired, um, so that made me kind of like the defending champion, if you will, in the sense that, you know, what people, what I felt like people were expecting, like, okay, well, number one is gone, it's four years later, um, so number two must be the person that's going to be number one. Um, so, yeah, I felt a, a lot of pressure in 08, and I think that kind of led to me not doing as well as I could have. Um, and I ended up in fourth place. Oh, in the 100 meter. Mm-hmm. I, I think you just brought up a great point, Lauren. And I, I, I'm often talking on this podcast about trying to, you know, kind of block out others' opinions if, if they're not, they don't have skin in the game and just be the, your best you. Now, I've never run 100 meter in front of millions of people at the Olympics. So is it, I guess, even maybe even after 04 and 08, could you try to, block out some of that I'm sure there's negativity when you become that big of an athlete and just focus on you getting better or were those um kind of was the surroundings hard to keep your focus yeah I mean I think those are the kind of life skills that you're learning as you go through competing um how to block out negative energy how to you know be careful what you feed your own mind that's you know something that's applicable to us in all types of life right now it's social media for a lot of people uh you wake up and you scroll through your timelines you go to bed scrolling through your timelines and um the information that we're giving ourselves is making us sick uh so we need to be very mindful and i think um you know there's a little trial and error for me and as I went through my career uh, and learned those, some of those lessons the hard way, like, you know, you just got to be mindful, be, you know, be the best person you can be, but also be mindful of there's going to be kind of haters out there and people that are going to say negative things and you need to just, you know, have a really strong support community around you and depend on them. I love that because like you said, that's not just for an Olympic athlete. That's for, that's for anybody. That's great advice for, no matter who the individual is. So I appreciate you kind of connecting that to the normal people like me. I appreciate that. (laughs) So 2008 um, ends and you go into 2012 in London. What's like, so now this is your third Olympic games in 2012. Is it like, do you still have the juices flowing like in 04 or does it change year to year? I mean, it's your third one, which uh, it's just unbelievable. You're, well, you're in four total, but the third one, what's the mindset going into your third Olympic Games versus the first two? Yeah, for me, the third Olympic Games was um, tough because my dad passed away in 2008. Um, so I knew I was going in without, you know, that support that I, you know, previously had. But then also, um, you know, I had kind of decided I didn't really want to compete anymore. So in 2010, I took a year off and thought I might be done. Um, and after the year off and some soul searching, I said, eh, I'm not going to just go out like this. You know, I want to see it through to, you know, at least through another um, quad, which is an Olympic Games. And I started to train again and get ready. Well, I didn't get, um, you know, I didn't get the results I wanted and I didn't make the 100 meters. I only made it for the relay in 2012. So uh, it was tough in the sense that I knew kind of the time for my career was starting to come to an end and I needed to start like figuring out what I want to do next. Um, but it also was a cool opportunity in the sense that in 04 and 08, we didn't win the relay. And this time we did. Not only did we win, we broke the world record. That is, so, that's just, <laughs> so just cause you brought it up earlier, I have to ask the question of when you mentioned you're going against some of these women in the hundred meter, then you're on the same team. Did the chemistry feel different in 2012 when you, when you set the world record? 
Yeah, um, I, I spent a lot of time making sure that we had better chemistry and better lines of communication open because I realized that in 04 and 08, that's what didn't go well. So we had a whole new team and I was able to share with them what I felt like held us back previously. And they, you know, really took heed to that. And I think that made all the difference in helping us be great. Oh, that's awesome. What's it, can you attempt to explain the feeling? Because when I watch, I mean, the Olympics to me is the ultimate. I mean, you have the best athletes in the world going head to head. And when I, when I see, I'm seeing it on TV, I've never even been there. But when you see the American flag go up and the national anthem playing, I mean, can you even attempt to describe how you're feeling in, in those moments? Because it happened to you, I mean, more than once. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just kind of surreal. Like there's not really words that you put behind it. It's like, wow, this is, this is cool. This is the culmination of all the hard work and all the effort and everything. And, you know, this is, this is that moment where you get to revel in it. <laughs> yeah. You definitely deserve all of that. How about, how about your, and I'm sorry about your father in 2008. Um, did your family get a chance to see, did you have any family come to 2012 or was it, were you going solo? Uh, in 2012, I think, I don't think anyone came in 2012. Yeah. Cause part of the relay, I was just there by myself. Um, in 2008, my mom and my, um, best friend were there. So they came all the way out to China. And like I said, in 04, we had quite a few people. So. Wow. What's the, when you're, when you're there and it's, you're there for about two weeks. Is that right? For the Olympics? Yeah. About that. Is it, I mean, can you focus in because I'm sure it's you know clearly it's a lot of young people in different countries and everything is it hard to even in an Olympic village are you focused in do you go to other events and cheer for Team USA or like how does that what's that feel like in the Olympic village yeah I always tell people that the, the to to achieve something awesome in life you do what you need to do to you know to get yourself there so like i said it's about laying a strong foundation building on that foundation um and setting up a plan that's clear so that you can peak when you need to um and i think what a lot of people do is like oh this is the pinnacle of all pinnacles let me train seven times harder let me never talk to anybody let me stay in my room 12 hours a day so that i don't have any distractions and you know you make these crazy um, changes to your regular lifestyle and it actually creates a lot more stress for you and it affects your performance. So um, I try to keep things as normal as possible. I go out, I socialize, you know, I don't stay up late because I don't do that on a regular basis. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not drinking alcohol or though, you know, like you, you do what's normal, but you don't need to shut yourself off from the world simply because like show up at practice, do what your coach gave you, um, eat a balanced meal, um, you know, don't start eating 20 cheeseburgers and don't start eating salad every day. You know, if that's not what you were doing previously, don't start doing weird things that are different. Um, try to keep your environment, even though you're in a new time zone and a new place and, you know, not your normal bed, but try to do the things that will keep your environment as normal as possible in order to really succeed. I love that. And again, that's not even, that can be applicable to any part of life. That's really, that's awesome. You, now, your environment, Lauren, is it, I guess my question is about, you said you had a, a coach for a while, and how important was it to have just awesome people around you? Because, you know, like you're 20 years old, you must have had some great coaches and mentors. Like, how, how important was that group around you? Yeah, it was really important to have like the proper people around you. So uh, a physical therapist that knew and understood my body and, you know, injury after injury, she remembered, oh, okay, well, the last time it was on the left side. So this time it's on the right, which means it's probably pulling here and whatever. Um, so somebody who really knew, it's like your pit crew, if you're like kind of into cars, um, that really are the, the, the pieces that hold the puzzle together. So I'm the vessel, um, you know, and there's somebody that works on the engine. There's someone who works on the, you know, footwork, the details and all these different things. So it's really important to have a nice sound group of people that you can trust and depend on. I like that. That was a good analogy too. I like that with the big crew in the cars. I got that. I get it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is the part of our chat where I don't even know what's going to happen. I'm so excited to ask you this. <laughs> I didn't even ask you before we started recording because I just wanted to hear what you're going to say. 2012, ends i mean you do great you guys set a world record you win a gold medal how does lauren williams say 
okay, that part of my career, maybe it's done, but I want to transition to a winter Olympic sport. I, I'm just, I almost want to like ask you, who's the first person that thought of it? Or maybe it was you, like, how does that come about? Yeah, I actually bumped into a girl in the airport um, who I'd read an article about having tried bobsled the previous year. And I was like, wow, that sounded pretty cool. Like, how did you get into it? And she just told me a little bit about how she got into it. And she's like, you should try it. And I knew that track and field was coming to an end for me. I was not able to compete at the same level that I was prior to. And, you know, I could have kept going for a few more years and maybe earned a little money here and there. But I didn't really want to damage my legacy and, you know, all that I'd accomplished by just kind of holding on to something that kind of run its course. So uh, it was time for me to move on from track and field. And I was just looking for, you know, I was thinking of bobsled something as more recreation that I would do to keep myself busy while I was looking for work and, you know, getting into the next part of life. And uh, little did I know that I was going to be good enough to go to the Olympic Games six months later. <laughs> Wait, you, you'd only been like training hard for six months before? Yeah, I didn't find out about bobsled until July. And I went um, to the, the first thing that I went to was basically the USA Championships. So it was the last opportunity to try to join the bobsled team um, at that point. And um, I was able to do that. My mind is blown. I mean, this is just incredible. This you transition that quick into into bobsledding, and I I need to tell you, Lauren. My wife and I were in Park City, Utah, uh, beginning of this year, and we went on the bobsled course there, and it was only like a third of the course. And I think my ears are still ringing from just <laughs> doing that. I mean, that I didn't think it was that brutal as far as physically taxing as it was. H how did when you started training, do you go to, I'm assuming you go to one of these places like Park City that has training available? Yeah, so Park City, Utah, Calgary, Canada, and Lake Placid, New York are the three in North America. Um, and we kind of rotate between those as teams um, to, you know, get proper training in until it's time to go across the water and, and compete. And, and how was the, I'm assuming due to your sprinting background, that helped with at least, I mean, getting the bobsled up and, up and running, right? Was that a big part of it? or all Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the sprinting is a, a, a big aspect of it and really being a power sprinter. So, you know, I apply a lot of force to the ground versus being a longer, lankier, covering more ground at one time. Um, and you really need that power to get a 400-pound sled moving. Is that what it is, 400 pounds? Yeah, yeah. Oh God, that's amazing. So, yeah, you got to be able to push that thing and, you know, kind of go Flintstone style with your feet being the engine. <laughs> that's another good analogy. So you find out that you're going Team USA again, but this time completely different sport. What's What are you feeling going over there in, I don't want to say a sport that you're not accustomed to, but it, it was a newer thing for you. I mean, was your confidence – Here's my question, I guess. Was your confidence just as high on the bobsled as when you were sprinting? Mm, it, was, it was completely different. So I think, you know, the approach that I took for bobsled was a, a humble approach. It was, what can I do to help this team be the best that they can be? You know, whether it's me contributing whatever I learned from competing in three other Olympic games, that's going to help them, you know, offering advice about how to sprint or, you know, how I'm doing my weightlifting, whatever the case may be. If, if there's something that I can contribute to this team, that's going to help them be better. I want to give. Um, and so I think approaching it with that attitude was much better than approaching it with the attitude of I deserve to be here. I'm going to win. I'm going to, um, earned my spot on the team. You know, I knew I was way too young and green and, you know, new to this sport to assume that I was going to come in and, you know, do, do all the things that I did. Yeah. So um, I think by kind of being cautiously optimistic and, you know, very humble and, you know, knowing that I was not guaranteed a spot and that it was okay if I didn't get a spot because I wanted the best people to be out there was the important thing. Oh, did you not know that you were going to be in the sled until, like, up until the last few few weeks or days? Yeah, they didn't name the Olympic team until one month before the Games. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how, how important, because I, I think that was fascinating what you said when you were sprinting and the team chemistry between the four of you. Is it similar in 
the other woman in the bobsled. You, you just need to be not only when you're on the track, but also just having a friendship and bond there. Yeah, the chemistry is really important as well because, you know, that helps you, you know, hit the sled at the right moment and have good energy and trust the other person and really want to push the sled hard for them or drive the sled well for them if you're in the driving position. So, yeah, chemistry goes a long way in these in these situations. And so how did – in you brought home the silver medal in, in the 2014 Winter Olympics. Can you walk us through the moment when – did you know – like when did you know – we have a shot at this thing and did the excitement level just go through the roof when I'm assuming is it the last run where you have to get a certain time and then you have a shot? Yeah. So we led for the first three rounds. Um, so we were in the gold medal position going into the last run. Um, and all we needed to do was stay ahead. And uh, unfortunately we skid um, at the very beginning and it slowed us down quite a bit. So we had a really good run um, and we lost by, I think 0.01 or something like that. Like it was by a very small margin that we ended up losing after um, leading for three rounds. So it was a pretty hard loss uh, actually to, to come up short after doing so well. How much of it, I, I didn't know that exact story at all, actually. How much of it is, I mean, it sounds like you could get a bad break here or there, I guess in, in any sport, really. But how much of that in bobsled is, is I guess, left up to chance? You could be the best in the world and one thing, you know, slides here or there. How much of it can just be, you know, a bad break? Yeah, some of it can be the conditions. Um, it's also the timing of when you get to go in the round. So, you know, the first person usually gets nice, fresh ice. The last person gets pretty slushy. You know, it's already used up and it's not as good. So um, other times the temperature is dropping and that makes the ice harder and that makes the ice faster. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of small little details that, you, that are outside of your control that can uh, affect the outcome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, I'm sure. There's a lot more than I would have ever thought. It's just it's some of the sports like feel like they're simple, and then you start hearing about how much goes on behind the scenes and the chemistry and the sled, and it's just there's so much going on I can't even imagine. Uh, so how, how did it feel uh, three Summer Olympics, one Winter Olympics? Is there a main difference that you felt other than the temperature that was – uh, a takeaway from summer versus winter? Did you like the vibe of one versus another? Did it feel the same, different? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, they're both very different. So the um, as an example, I think that the number of track and field athletes was 182 um, in the last games. And the number of all of Team USA for winter sports was 128. Um so it's small, 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 small in comparison to the Olympic game. I mean, the summer games, which are gargantuan. Um, so that's a big difference. And then, you know, the time that you get to spend with people. And then uh, bobsled is a team sport, where track and field is a more individual sport. Um, so, yeah, there's some differences for sure. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really cool insight. I didn't know that that was that much different as far as athletes go. That's pretty wild. Um, so you've – I mean, you just had extreme success as an elite athlete for, I mean, decade, well over a decade. Can you, can you give, um, let's say, the, the average athlete some ideas of what habits you put into place that has helped you succeed at the highest level? Are there some takeaways that um, we can get from all the success you've had and what you did as far as the, the habits? Yeah, um, you know, to automate as much as possible. I tell people this about their finances as well. Um, so, you know, create a schedule, create stability. And, you know, Mondays before so-and-so, I go to work out. To, you know, Tuesdays, I work out in the afternoon, et cetera. Um, so to automate as much of your life to where there is some sort of scheduling or something that's happening that makes it easy for you to be able to do the things that you need to do um, to create the good habits. Because generally what I see is, you know, as an example, dieting is something that, you know, popular in America, people want to eat better and do better, et cetera. Um, but there's no stability. So you're on the road all the time and there's a buffet and you didn't get time to meal prep over the weekend. You don't have any groceries and now you're super hungry. Sure. Um, instead of, you know, like I said, automating your life in the sense that like, okay, every Sunday I go grocery shopping. Um, you know, I buy these three things that, you know, 
I can just throw together real quick and that'll get me through Monday and Tuesday. And then Wednesdays I start work later. So I got time to meal prep and get through Thursday and Friday or whatever the case may be. Um, automation is key. And, you know, I always say that, like I said, finance wise, I always tell people to like pay themselves first and put their money directly in their savings account. So paycheck comes in, money moves automatically to your savings, and then you have to work with whatever's left over. So automation is a really key part of life that I think could work, you know, both in finances and in sport. I love that. I just wrote that down. Automation. That's a great answer. Well, that was a perfect transition because I was going to ask you about after 2014. So I, I guess I was thinking about your, you know, your athletic career was just unbelievably powerful, amazing. And then how do you, how did you transition from that and then, kind of reinvent yourself and know what you were going to do afterwards. Did you already have an idea or was this something that came about after 2014? Yeah. So some seeds had been planted, um, you know, during the course of my career and my journey, I was a, you know, finance major at the university of Miami. I earned an MBA while I was competing in sports. So I was always looking for something to fall back on. Should, you know, you fall down and break your leg. Like, what are you going to do? Um, I earned a real estate license as well because I was interested in just knowing more about that. So I, I feel like I'd started to lay the groundwork, but it mostly came from me not getting the service that I wanted from the financial advisors I worked with during my career. Mm. So I highly, highly valued, um, you know, the expertise of others and knew that it was worth paying for um, in the same way that a coach is a valuable aspect for an athlete. Um, you know, there are tons of other experts in other areas of our lives, finance being one of them. And I really wanted to have someone help me. Um, however, the, the two gentlemen that I hired, I don't think were best equipped to help an athlete or a young professional. Um, so, you know, as a young person, we do a lot more with things like financial literacy and, you know, just really wanting to get a strong foundation um, and making sure that the person that I worked with had skills to help me or had time to spend even helping me become more financially literate was not something I knew to ask for. I was just like, okay, you're a financial advisor. I like you. You're hired. Um, but it, the skill set didn't match what, what my need was. Um, and so when I realized that there were not a lot of people who had a skill set to match what my need was, I decided to start a financial company to serve young professionals and to serve professional athletes so that we could get access to the information that um, is necessary. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, so you've I mean, you've technically known a lot about finances for a long, long time. I, I mean, that's that's awesome. Can you speak to your your brand and your company a little bit and go into a little more detail on who you're helping and how you're helping them because it's just, it sounds just awesome what you're doing. Yeah. So I run a financial company called worth winning. Um, my clients are generally in their twenties and thirties. Um, and it's not that so much that I set an age range, but I kind of focus on people who are trying to accumulate and build a strong foundation. So as I said, it's so key to get started on the right foot and to correct course before it's too late. You know, sometimes you get to retirement age and you're trying to figure things out and there's just not enough income. Um, and it's hard thing to have a conversation with someone and tell them, Hey, you're going to need to work for 10 more years, even though you don't, you, you don't want to, um, <laughs> it's much more fun to tell people, Hey, you're not saving enough, but if we get on track, uh, you know, we can get where we want to go. And so for me, I'm very much into financial planning so more than I am into like investment advice per se. Uh, I am qualified and I do provide my clients with investment advice, but um, helping people figure out their student loan situation because a lot of young professionals are struggling with that nowadays. Um, a lot of people have never made a budget in their life before and they know they need to, but they're, they're um, overwhelmed by the idea of it and they kind of get paralysis. Um, you're getting married and you've always handled your finances and they've handled their finances. And how do we work together to reach our financial goals? financial goals. Should we even get a same account? You know, some people have anxiety around that because of things they've experienced with, you know, divorce or in their, in their childhood. So, you know, talking through all aspects of your finances, not just the investment piece of it is what I pride myself on and helping people understand, like, how do we get organized to reach our goals um, in light of what our values are? I love that. And you can just tell how passionate you are about that response. I mean, you're, you're all about this. I think that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, and worth it's called worth winning right mm -hmm. so how do we what's the easiest way to look you up or get some more info on your brand 
Yeah, it's worth-winning.com. So it's super simple. Um, I also have a podcast as well. And it's, you know, like branded. So it's called worth-listening.com. Um, and it's all about helping people feel more comfortable about having money discussion. So for me, it's really, really important that we feel more comfortable chatting because, you know, it's great if you hire a financial advisor. I, you know, I, I want them to be because I'm, I am one. That's how I make a living. But how cool would it be if you just talked to your friend and said, hey, how are you saving into your 401k? Um, without it getting all weird and, you know, oh, don't talk to me about that. I don't want to, you know, get out of my business and all that. Like, um, because if I know that you, I'm saving 10% and you're saving 3% and you're my friend, Matt, like, I want to encourage you to save 10%. I don't need to be a fancy financial expert to encourage you as a friend to save more and do better because I want you to retire with me. I want to make sure that when I'm ready to go on trips that you're able to go with me. Um, that, you know, you're not taking on debt right now when we go on trips. You know, I don't want you charging it to your credit card. And then I spent six or seven months saving up. Um, and if we're not having those kind of discussions as friends and with people that we care about, then we're not doing our part to make sure that everybody is, is financially fit as they can be. That is, that's awesome. I, I have never heard that the financial world put the way you just put it. And I think that's, I think it's inspiring that you're having those conversations because like you said, sometimes it is a taboo subject and maybe that's just in our heads. And once you bring it up, do, do you feel are, are your friends and acquaintances becoming more open to having discussions with you about that? Or is it sometimes like just, <laughs> it's hard to get something out of them? It's still pretty hard to get uh, information out of friends and family. I think, you know, now that I have all these licenses and things like that, um, I'm almost a little bit intimidating for them. So um, as much as I would love to be able to help, they're still a little bit shy in accepting the help. And, you know, with people you care about, you're happy to give them free advice. Because um, like I said, you want to see them do well. But um, yeah, we're still working past that barrier of them feeling comfortable sharing so that I can help them. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's it's can be tough, but I'm sure once you start having the discussions, I mean, you're going to help them in just an extremely positive way. So I, I, I need to acknowledge you and then I'm going to, we'll wrap up here. But Lauren, I think that's just so awesome that it felt like even when you were at the top of your game as an athlete, you always still knew it was going to end at some point and you need to move on to the next big thing. And it just seems like your transition was so smooth and I'm sure there's bumps along the road but kudos to you for just having the you know the foreshadowing or looking forward in the future and knowing there is there is life after uh being an athlete I guess and it's just it's amazing that's incredible that you set yourself up so well it's awesome well it has been a pleasure going this journey and, you know, learning all these things and, you know, watching my story unfold uh, has not been without bumps in the road. But uh, I, now that I look back on a lot of those bumps, I realized that there were lessons being taught. And so I don't regret them or, you know, want to change them. And I'm sure there's some other bumps ahead, but there's also a lot of really good times ahead. And you kind of hang your hat on, um, you know, being the best version of yourself that you can be and rolling with the punches when things are not going great. And I think that's a really good way to approach life and, you know, to continue to have a really fun journey. I do too. I think you put that so perfectly and we'll, we'll wrap up with it there. If you don't mind, I do real quick at the end. It's called the final five. I ask everybody the same five questions. And if you can, and this is like the challenging part. Um, if you can get it like a one sentence answer, some of them are deeper Ooh, questions, but rapid we'll see. Fire. there okay. we go. Ready? Are you up for it, Lauren? I am up for it. Let's do it. <laughs> Okay. How do you want to be remembered? I'd love to be remembered as an authentic person who, you know, genuinely cared, genuinely cared about the people around them. I love that. Authentic. That's such a great word. What are you most thankful for? I am most thankful for having people who love and care about me unconditionally. Hmm. Unconditionally, that's a, that's a good word right there too. Well said. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's probably my favorite one. If I see Lauren at a wedding reception and she's dancing, what is her best dance move? Oh boy, she does not have a best dance move. <laughs> Just the, the stand still and kind of wave your head a little. 
Like, <laughs> the, the more excited I get, the worse my dancing becomes. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> a natural dancer. You got to stick to sports. I was going to say, you're natural at a lot of other things. So maybe that's one thing you don't need to be perfect at. Okay, who, uh, what's the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome? Biggest obstacle? I would say self-confidence issues, uh, for sure. Um, you know, people kind of assume as an Olympian and someone that has a little bit of fame that you'd have gargantuan self-confidence, but I've struggled with self-confidence quite a bit, you know, believing in myself, understanding that I'm good enough. And I think it, you know, being an athlete actually has probably made it worse because you feel, like I said, so much pressure to always be right or always be on top of things and um, to know it all. And yeah, there's just a lot of pressure and uh, self-confidence. That's a, that's a great response. And I think you're right, Lauren. I mean, for me, that's not an Olympic athlete, a lot of other people, I'm sure they think, oh, you know, she's an Olympian, like she's got it all figured out, like everything's fine. And I'm, it's probably not always like that. Uh, that's, yeah. that's, I'm human too. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Okay, last one. Who is your hero? Um, I don't know that I have a hero per se. Uh, I haven't, I've never been big on role models or things like that. I think um, you know, we can all be heroes to one another in different moments. So I can think of friends who have swooped in right when I needed them um, in one occasion and then another friend or a parent that has swooped in on, on other things. So I think my hero is the overall overarching community of people who are willing to help and to lend a hand when necessary. I've asked that question to a lot of people and I've never got a response like that. And I love that. That is... <laughs> It's like the ultimate team response. That was, that was just awesome. <laughs> All right, well, we're wrapping up. Can you tell everybody, we know it's worth-winning.com. Okay. Is there, if people want to follow up with you, whether it's just to say hi or ask for financial advice, what's the best, where, where are you most active on social media? Yeah, I'm on pretty much everything. So my name is Lauren Williams, and at Lauren is with a Y, L-A-U-R-Y-N. Um, so if you do a quick Google search, you'll probably find all of my social media accounts, but the company is called Worth Winning and it all has social media as well. So Twitter, we're on Worth Winning and Lauren. Instagram, there's a Worth Winning and there's a Lauren Williams. Um, and then Facebook as well, there's Worth Winning and Lauren. So you can find me on any of the three platforms in addition to lauren-williams.com as my website if you're booking for speaking engagements or things like that for, you know, be, being an Olympian. And if you're interested in financial advice, you go to worth-winning.com. I love that. You got, you got all the bases covered. Well, thank you. And we'll, we'll put that in the show notes so everybody can see where to see more of you. And Lauren, thank you for your time. This is everything that I hope for times 10. You're just Awesome. I root for you and I wish you the best. Awesome. It was great talking to you today, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Back at you, Pittsburgh 412. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Living the Dream with Matt Scaletti. I'm so grateful for you. Please share this podcast on your social media so others can benefit from this valuable content. Also, please subscribe to my podcast because if you aren't, I am watching you. <laughs> Check me out on social media and message me if you need me as your keynote speaker at Matt Scaletti on social media. I respond to all messages. Thanks and I love you so much.